Welcome to Phenomena. My name is Shauna Lee Lynch. I am Maria Butler. And this is the podcast where we talk about women who have been underrepresented or and our written out of Irish history. Um, so thanks for listening. And this week, Maria is going to tell us about... Mary McSweeney. Who's she when she's at home? Uh, Mary McSweeney is really interesting. I'm kind of fascinated with her. Um, I apologise in advance. I became a little bit obsessed with researching Mary McSweeney. So I have approximately 50 pages of notes that I'm going to try and condense down into 20 minutes. Um, Mary McSweeney has a more famous brother. So I'm just going to start with this and get it out of the way and then talk about Mary McSweeney because her brother did actually have a huge influence on her life and how she acted uh, afterwards, I guess. So Mary McSweeney is the older sister of Terence McSweeney, the former Lord Mayor of Cork, who died of hunger strike in 1920 when he was arrested by the British authorities. Um, So... He was an Irish revolutionary who would have fought for the Irish cause and would have influenced Mary both before and after his death. Well, I say after, not as post. <laughs> How he died would have influenced her afterwards. So I guess Mary herself was an educator, an orator, um, really good at working the media, loved having arguments with people in letter pages of newspapers which I just think is hilarious um, and would have been like one of Ireland's kind of most staunchly Republican figures male or female um, which I'll explain as 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 this progresses um, but yeah she was a badass but she definitely has a, she has a potted legacy for sure okay. Um, there's a reason why I think that we don't necessarily hear about her as much as Countess Markiewicz, for example, who would have been her contemporary. So, gonna start off. Um, Mary was born in London in 1872. So, as I said in last week's episode, she's kind of more adopted Cork than Cork. However, her father was a Cork man. Okay. And her mother was English, which I find super fascinating with how against the English she took as years went on. So wow. mother English, father Irish. They moved back to Cork when she was seven, where her father started a tobacco business. After his business failed, he emigrated alone to Australia, where he died in 1895. Jeez. Yeah. So she was ill throughout a lot of her childhood, which resulted in the amputation of an infected foot. As a result of that, she graduated education slightly later than would have been expected at the time and also kind of had the reputation for being less rambunctious and more kind of like bookish and insular because I guess she wouldn't have been able to go out and play with people to the same extent. Um, she moved to England and the Isle of Wight for a number of years as a teacher before the death of her mother left her, led her back to Cork where she minded her younger siblings and got a job teaching in her former Cork school, St Angela's. So as a founder member with unionist Violet Martin and Edith Somerville of the non-militant Munster Women's Franchise League in 1911, Mary was originally publicly associated with women's suffrage 
However, she seems to have found it difficult to reconcile suffrage with Irish republicanism and eventually focused her revolutionary attention on republicanism. Um, this is often cited as an influence of her brother Terence, who would have started to get involved in that. When she came back to Ireland, he was still relatively young, so she was kind of a mother okay. figure towards him. She helped raise him, but she would have gotten involved in the politics that he was getting involved in. So a quote that I have found directly from her, which was published in The Irish Citizen in May 1914, speaking about suffrage, is, bear with me, it's quite long, um, to plead with suffrage suffragists for a little common sense and political insight may be looked upon nowadays as a request for a dispatch of coals to Newcastle and yet it seems to be true that many Irish suffragists are rather losing their heads and by their present tactics injuring their own cause. This does not apply to militants only but to all those whose views are expressed in recent leaders of the Irish citizen. In England convinced suffragists rightly place votes for women above and before all other reforms and this policy expresses itself in consistent and continual opposition to the government, while the government as such is opposed to women's suffrage. No question of party on reform of any kind, social, fiscal, agrarian, can in any way compare with the dominant need in England today, the woman's voice, backed by the power of the vote, in all questions of reform. But in Ireland, even those who place suffrage first must take the special circumstances of the country into consideration if they wish to win adherence to their cause. Ireland's struggling to settle not a party question, but a national one. And opposition to the government in the present crisis means opposition to home rule. The fact that many Irish suffragists play the political ostrich and refuse to recognise the essential difference between this and the English party questions does not minimise that difference. It simply blinds their political intelligence and injures the cause they wish to promote. So you can already see at this stage she's kind of moving more towards republicanism than suffragism which I would argue go hand in hand to be honest in Ireland at the time which seems to be what she's arguing as well yeah um so in 1914 she also co-founded the Cork branch of Come in the Bawn and their first meeting was actually held in the McSweeney house in Black Rock okay so as you see at this stage it's still kind of going hand in hand of the woman's rights with with the revolutionary side of things um, so this kind of would have continued, this kind of line of thought would have continued for a couple of years. Um, and then obviously in 1916 happened. So according to Ordinary Woman in Extraordinary Times, 11 Cork women in revolutionary years, 1916 to 1923, she was considered a reluctant supporter of the 1916 rising. And this view was used against her later when the divisiveness of the civil war politics cast its long shadow. Yet, this is to misunderstand her apprehension about the rising. Her reticence was more to do with what she saw as bad timing and inadequate planning that left areas like Cork in an impossible position for effective rebellion in Easter 1916. So her direct quote, Cork, as everyone knows, is built on a hollow surrounded on all sides by hills. The volunteer HQ was in the flat of the city and directly under one of the enemy's big guns all the week. From Easter Monday afternoon, all aggress was impossible. Further information of the enemy's movements had shown the impossibility of any movement on our part, and then came the further threat that any attempt on the part of the volunteers to take action would result in the instant shelling of the city. So, like, she was a she was a, a pragmatic woman for sure. Yeah, don't necessarily agree with all of the areas in which uh, all of the ways that she kind of thought about things but you can definitely see that there's like a, a very consistent sense of logic with how she's saying this case I think the logic is, is pretty strong yeah if we had taken part we would have been shot yeah, yeah. we'd all be dead and then who's going to fight the cause 
Um, so following Stand In with the volunteers in Cork, the city was, you know, dealing with the general raids, arrests, all of that kind of stuff. She actually got arrested herself while she was teaching in St. Angela's College. They came in and arrested her while she was teaching. I think it was maths, uh, (laughs) I read. So that was as a result of her activities kind of in the year prior to the Rising and also her connection to Terence, her brother. So she was released from jail following the intervention of the Catholic Bishop of Court, Dr. Daniel Cohallan. Um, but she lost her job in St. Angela's. She believed largely as a result of this, which makes sense. Respectful, <laughs> Came in, respectful system. Um, so as a result of that, in September 1916, herself and her sister Annie opened Skull Eta, which was open until 1954 in their home in Belgrave Place in Cork. It was based on the model of St. Enda's, the Port Pierce School, and was an... Irish Ireland School and a progressive educational establishment and I've read from a couple of places that a lot of the kind of leading educators in Ireland at the time such as O'Reilly the former president of UCC kind of said in later years that much as they didn't necessarily agree with her politics her actual educational theory and everything was was pretty solid okay Um, I'm not going to focus too much on her educational side of things because there's just so much to get through but that's just something to kind of bear in mind in the background so in 1917, she was elected to come in the Bond's national executive, which started to bring her to national attention. However, it was only really following the arrest of her brother, Terence McSweeney, in 1920, which drew her into the public eye. She proved herself adept at dealing with the world's media and alongside her sister, Annie, and Terence's wife, Muriel, they worked hard to draw attention to his plight and subsequent death from hunger strike. So she went over to England when he was arrested and like was really kind of drawing all of the fury on the world's media to really shine a spotlight on everything that was happening in Cork. Don't forget as well, uh, you mentioned last week about uh, Tomás McCurtain. Mm. He would have been very close to that family. So she's already, as far as she's concerned, one of her close friends is already after being murdered by the English. Now her brother's being held illegally by the English on trumped up charges. He's on hunger strike. She's not being allowed in to see him half the time because she's causing such a ruckus. And she's really drawing as much attention to the cause as she can. Um, So I kind of do think of her as like quite an early kind of like civil rights campaigner around that kind of side of things. It's the kind of stuff that you see happening with Amnesty International at the moment. She seems to have like been very adept at that whole system. Terence died uh, at the end of uh, 76 days, I think possibly, 74 days, um, but uh, 70 something days anyway. I think from what I've read about her that the death of Terence cast like a lifelong shadow on Mary's ideology and cemented it from that point until the point of her death. Yeah. I definitely think that's why she became so inflexible in in her in her ideology and in what way the cause should go. Following the death of Terence, both Mary and Mary's sister-in-law, Muriel, went to America on a tour, again to kind of spread the word of what was going on so as part of that they were invited to speak in front of the American Commission on Conditions in Ireland and now this commission documented hundreds of incidences and its hearings were reported in newspapers all over the world and the findings had a very powerful 
impact on um, Irish Americans abroad who they were trying to fundraise on and also in nationalist circles back at home. A lot of the work that I'm doing, this is me very poorly paraphrasing um, the work by the Shandon Historical Society for this particular part of it. So um, I am not plagiarising. <laughs> Thank you, Shandon History Society, for the work that you've done around this. Mary did this, obviously, because she wanted to spread the word about Terence. That being said, she also really wanted to go home. While she was in America, she was nominated for her brother Terence's seat as a TD. And obviously, with everything that had been happening, she, she won the seat. So she was a T. She then became a TD at this stage, but she was still in America. Okay. So this brings us into 1921, um, which if anybody listening isn't really that familiar with modern Irish history, that's when the Anglo-Irish Treaty debates took place. Now, the Anglo-Irish Treaty debates obviously had like massive repercussions and still do to this day on like Ireland as a nation. That's how come we came up with like Northern Ireland and, and the Republic of Ireland. Mary McSweeney really wanted to go over to England and partake in the Anglo-Irish Treaty negotiations. And de Valera wouldn't let her. She believed until her death that things would have been very different if she had gone over. And it's really interesting because like I've I've seen these correspondences that she has and even she mentions it in in, in the doll um about how she was kind of like worried about certain people going over, but she she had so much respect in other people that she knew that they wouldn't negotiate, that they'd like or not negotiate, but that they wouldn't like lay down Ireland's power essentially. And that like at least if she couldn't be there, they could be there instead of her. The other thing which is really interesting is no women went over to mm. the to that uh, to the negotiations now granted there was more men than women in the doll at the time i think i counted something like seven women but the women that were there as well you've got mary mcsweeney you've got countess Markovich, you've got Porrick pierce's mother you know you've got like some some pretty influential women mm. um but alas none of them went over she wasn't led back or not wasn't led back but she was encouraged to stay in america rather than partaking in that um, but did come back in time for the treaty debates in the job. Now, as I've kind of alluded to before, <laughs> Mary was very, by this stage, very staunchly Republican. And she wanted, you know, a republic. She lost her brother to the cause. So when the, they came back with the treaty, she was not happy. In, I think, December 1921, the treaty debates happened in the doll where the two sides were trying to figure out whether to accept the treaty or whether to not accept the treaty. Mary McSweeney spoke for two hours and 40 minutes <laughs> on why the treaty should be rejected, making it the longest speech in any of the treaty debates. I have read the speech. I've read most of the speech. No, <laughs> did I? I read all of the speech. Um, and yeah, no, it's, it's really interesting. And... Um, anything that's ever been written in the doll is available on the Oireachtas website. Oh wow! Um, because it's public record. It's, it's public record, so mm. you can actually go and look up this debate yourself. If you just search Mary McSweeney within it, uh, December nineteen twenty one, you'll you'll find the whole record of the speech. But she talks about education. She talks about you know, the betrayal of certain people. She talks about how um, Michael Collins had, like, 
been such a, a massive force in Ireland in the lead up to it that a lot of people were willing to take his word based on it, even though he himself didn't really believe in it. So it's it's just a really interesting read of a snapshot of people's thoughts at the time. It's also not something that that uh, me as somebody who grew up obsessed with 1916, who grew up obsessed with the War of Independence, all that kind of stuff. I always thought of it as more of a man's thing. Mm. Like I knew there was the coming of on and everything, but like you've got Countess Markievicz and you've got no one else really thought in the history books. And here you've got this woman telling this incredibly long argument as to all of the reasons why everybody shouldn't do what they're about to do. And like steadfastly saying that if this happens, she will not recognize it, that she will be the first rebel. <laughs> that in order to be a rebel, there has to be a government to to rebel against and that because they don't they didn't recognize the English government up until that point she was not a rebel but that if if they start to recognize the doll she'll become a rebel and it's just amazing it's this really revolutionary stuff coming from a woman um which proves that it happened and that unfortunately we just don't get to hear about it as much as if it was something that was said by Michael Collins or James Connolly or Porrick Pierce or any of those so you can hear how excited I'm yeah. about it. Um, so along with all the other female TDs in the doll, Mary refused to ratify the treaty and voted against it. Mm. So now what I will say is there was a second treaty that was kept secret and she does say that she would be willing to ratify that one. Okay. But that one wasn't given as an option. So it's it's not that she was completely immalleable. It was just that it she was, was just what was in that what one. was being offered at that yeah. time. Um, so she walked out of the doll with Deb and his supporters following the ratification of the treaty. And for the rest of her life, Mary continued to claim allegiance to the second doll and to the republic claimed by proclaimed by the nineteen sixteen revolutionaries as the true republic, refusing to recognize the free state. So following the the ratification of the treaty and the Civil War, uh, she was very active on the anti-treaty side during the Civil War, unsurprisingly. Um, and she was actually arrested a number of times. And she went on hunger strike twice. Now, like, she went on hunger strike despite the fact that her, her brother, brother died. died from hunger strike. Um, so the first time she went on hunger strike was 24 days in November 1922. In Cork. Um, I haven't got that written down in front of me now. I have a feeling she was in Kilmainham once and I'm not sure where she was the other times. Cool. But it wasn't just Cork. It was she definitely was like in... outside of Cork as well because this is all national. Yeah. So she went, yes, yeah, so for the first time 24 days in November 1922. And for the second time, it was 19 days in April 1923. So while this, while she was on hunger strike, I'm not sure which one it, it was, but her sister-in-law, Muriel, marched in America to secure public pressure for her release. I've seen the placards. Um, and one of her placards read, England murdered my husband, Terence McSweeney. Will America permit the English Free State to murder her sister, Mary McSweeney? So they're really going for the jugular here. Her internment and the resonance with her brother's hunger strike produced a wave of protest throughout Ireland and America. She eventually got released. During the Civil War, the Bishop of Cork, Daniel Kohalan, who was the same guy who actually I mentioned earlier as yeah. well, who had got her released back in 1916, um, he took steps to ban hunger striking 
by mm. declaring that anybody who died from a hunger strike would not receive a requiem mass and burial from the Catholic Church in Cork. Sensing a pattern in these podcasts yeah. church men just like refusing to do stuff. Refusing to baptize. It's like uh, the stereotype of people withholding sex. Like uh, that's the church it. are like, well, we're not going to give you a funeral. So. <laughs> um, so things came to a head in 1923 following the death of Cork volunteer and anti-treatiate Dennis Barry. And this led to a bitter exchange of letters in the Cork Examiner in 1923. Remember I said, Mm. big fan of writing letters. Which resulted in Mary reminding the bishop publicly that he had celebrated the Requiem Mass for her brother three years earlier. In the end, though, um, the bishop didn't cave. So Mary and her sister Annie organised the funeral. And in the absence of a priest, David Kent... Uh, TD and brother of Thomas Kent said prayers and sprinkled holy water on the grave and Mary gave an oration. So it's it's still kind of sad, Jeez. but at least she's kind of like out there. Um, so after the Civil War, she continued with her activism against the treaty and against the Free State. She's still teaching at this time as well. After the Civil War, she continued with her activism against the treaty and the Free State. Um, as I said, she was she was teaching at the at the same time as well. She was elected to the doll for Sinn Féin in 1923, but would not accept her seat because she didn't recognise the doll. She also broke with de Valera over his decision to leave Sinn Féin in order to fall Fianna Fáil and enter the doll because she rejected his acceptance of the oath. Remember, they had to make an oath of allegiance mm. back then as an empty formula, seeing it as a betrayal and their relationship suffered as a result. So one of the books that I was reading... Uh, actually documents that like they weren't it wasn't that they weren't in contact after that but like in the earlier letters it was very much like a cara and like all this kind of stuff and after that all of her letters are addressed to like Mr. De Valera <laughs> which is, is is quite interesting um, so she never joined Fianna, F- Fianna Fáil good for her and she remained with Sinn Féin until her own departure from politics in 1938 now, her diehard position isolated her from the seat of power and influence. Um, she got into a lot of arguments with Kamunaban as well, which kind of isolated her. So Kamunaban kind of would have split a few times kind of between the doll, kind of, or between 1921 and, and, and subsequently, which is actually one of the reasons that I've read why we don't necessarily find out so much about Irish women at that period because although they were such a major force in the formation of the Irish Free State the kind of infighting led to so many separations and divisions that it prevented women from kind of staying consolidated in power which is why at the beginning of of the Irish Republic you have quite a lot of women and then it peters off a lot until kind of relatively recently which I just think is a really interesting side note um, yes so she lost her doll seat in 1927 I love this I just think this is hilarious so as I mentioned she was a teacher and she had her school her refusal to engage with the free state was so insistent that she wouldn't offer the intermediate or the leaving certificate in her school because they were like created by the doll yeah and she didn't recognize the doll so instead her students took the NUI matriculation exams in order to get into university now that being said and I don't have time to go into this story but by now by the mid-1930s Mary's niece Terence's daughter 
Marie or Moira was living with her in Cork. They had to rescue her from Germany. It was a whole big thing. Um, Muriel and um, her sister-in-law, Muriel and Mary didn't speak to each other. And nor did Muriel speak to her own daughter for the rest of her life. But Moira there, Moira Marie, she said that despite the fact that Mary was was very adamant about this in her school, she didn't prevent Marie from going and sitting the exams elsewhere. So it's like she just wasn't going to teach it. She but. just wasn't going to teach it in her school. So it's this really interesting picture of, of Mary McSweeney is, is pretty much constantly there of the fact that she was very hardline, but at the same time, not imposing her hardline notions her. on other people. Which, to a certain extent, yeah. she was. But like, yeah, but it wasn't you know. like she wasn't very. She wasn't going to interfere with that with her niece's life exactly. to an extent. Yeah. So this is kind of bringing us up to the end of the Mary McSweeney story. So she believed that she and the other members of Sinn Féin had been the true custodians of the Irish Republic before the treaty. She eventually resigned from Sinn Féin when other members began to cooperate with Fianna Fáil, uh, with the Fianna Fáil-led doll in 1938. So this culminated in her, along with six other former Sinn Féin members, signing a document declaring that they were now passing the stewardship of the Republic over to the IRA. At this stage, the IRA was on the brink of mobilising a campaign. There were still people being killed. It was it was quite messy and most of the country were coming out against this. She died in the 1940s before the true extent of what was done by the IRA over the subsequent decades kind of uh, began but because the fact that one of her last acts and one of her last years of life was to sign over a custodian to the IRA therefore slightly legitimizing them yeah that has led to as I said a, a potted view of yeah that she was of her legacy a part of it but that being said and I am in no way sanctioning the work of the IRA in in recent decades or whatever but you have to look at her as a product of her time and a product of her environment mm-hmm. and like you know she was through the she went through the 1916 she went through the war of independence she went through the civil war she lost family members she lost friends you know uh, all of the country's leaders at the time would have been actively involved mm. in the IRA so like I do think it's important to absolutely understand that she she did leave a bit of a dodgy legacy, but at the same time she was working within her frame of context at that particular time, and I don't think it's fair to completely judge her and malign her as a result of that. For sure. Um, so when she died was in 1942, still loyal to the second doll, earning for herself um, the title The Last True Republican, which I think is is a lovely a, a lovely title to be left with and yeah i i just think that she did leave an enduring legacy behind and that it is a pity that when we learn about the likes of Markievicz, we don't also learn about mary mcsweeney now i know that she didn't fight in the same way that Markievicz did but she was as I mentioned, an educator, a radical, uh, started off with suffrage, then like became a TD and 
just a really, really fascinating woman. And I would strongly recommend people read more into her, especially because it's so modern. You're, it's very easy to access a lot of her letters and a lot of like pieces of information about her. And by the time this comes out, it will be quite interesting because of the election. Because of the election, yeah. And what who knows <laughs> what, what times we'll be living in. Could we be living in a, in a, a potentially Sinn Féin-led country? Who knows? Who knows, Maria? I'd say Mary McSweeney, is, is, it would be very interested if she could see what was going on in yeah. right now. I don't know if she'd be happy or not about it, but definitely interested. Cool. Um, so where can we find out more about her if we want to? Will you leave the links? The I will leave the links in. I will leave the links in in the show notes. And um, yeah, there's actually like a relatively there's a there's a relatively decent amount written about her. Um, for the sake of the information that I was giving today, the sources that I would have leaned most heavily upon are um, that book that I mentioned Ordinary Women in Extraordinary Times which was published by the Shandon Area History Group who have done a great piece of work but I would just say a word of caution there's one or two things in it that I wasn't able to find corroborated in other places that's why I haven't mentioned them today much as I wish it was true I'm not confident enough Gotta do a deep dive. I've got to do a deep dive. I also read Ireland Suffragettes by Sarah Beth Watkins and another book, Bold, Brilliant and Bad by Marion Broderick. Although actually, I think that the McSweeney stuff is in The Wild Irish Women, also by Marion Broderick. Um, so yeah, guys, that's everything about Mary McSweeney from me. So thank you so much for listening. And you can follow us on social media. By now, we will have a new government and a new Instagram, <laughs> Facebook title, etc. That will be at the bottom of our notes. So yeah, thanks guys. Talk to you again next week. Talk at you again next week. <laughs> Talk to us in the meantime if you want. <laughs> Bye.